Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. How dare Draco Malfoy tell Martin Brundle to go away? Lewis has stitched me right up here. He's supposed to be my mate. Midway through the flight, he suddenly decides that they want to put me in the overhead locker in the plane. Everybody in the Bears team found all these mouldy hairs in the bottom of their bag. Felt his hand on me. And I look back and he says, we're going to get this picture, champ. Oh my goodness. That has got to be the worst attempt of a drop goal in televised history. Hello, my name is Simon Lazeby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, international rugby, England cricket and golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs and the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sport. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honour at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you. St. Norwood School is a school for autistic children and young adults. And we have set this podcast up to provide our pupils with a fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing the top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a Liverpool legend. He won two European Cups, four League Cups and three League titles for Liverpool. He has gone on to work at some of the best clubs in the country. Welcome to the podcast, Sammy Lee. Thomas, Jacob, thank you very much for your very kind invitation. As I said before, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. We like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talking about your career. You okay, ready? well, shall I give you some random answers then, shall I? Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Adam. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I've got quite a few, to be honest here. But um, the most important one is the wife. I've got to make sure that she's in there, otherwise I'll be in trouble. So um, the most famous... Well, it's, again, I've been very lucky to work, like you mentioned before, some very, very good people, but we, be it coaches, be it players... And there's quite an array, you know, I've got you know, people like Graeme Souness in there, Stevie Gerrard in there, Jamie Carragher in there. And hopefully I can have your two numbers afterwards so we, if we can keep in touch in the future. Would that be a possibility? Possibly. Yeah. All right, OK, we'll see, OK. Very uh, reluctant there, weren't you, Zay? But reluctant, OK, I get that, OK. If you could tread laws of anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Mm, great question. Great question. Um, I think I'd like to change like with Jürgen Klopp. Okay. Jürgen Klopp, I think, because for me, he's um, he's at the best club, in my opinion, in the world. I think he's possibly one of the best managers in the world. He's the best manager for this football club. He gets the club, he gets the people, he gets what we're about. And if I could change places with anybody, it'd be him. At this moment in time. You have been elected Mayor of Liverpool. What is the first thing you do as Mayor? I'd make entrance to all the football stadiums free. 
and make sure that people can come and watch the game. Because for me, it's about the people. Football is about the people, and I think not enough people are, can can get into into our stadia, whether it be Liverpool or Everton, or Manchester United or City or Tranmere. So I'd make um, I'd make access free for everybody. Thank you for answering those questions. Let's chat about your career. Okay. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. What are your memories of growing up, and did you always want to be a footballer? Well. Again, another great question. I'm, um, I'm from the city centre, and I'll be honest with you, yeah, I'd want to be a Liverpool supporter or an Everton supporter. Um, I always want to be a Liverpool supporter, and I always was, um, and I always am, and I always will be. Um, and I always wanted to play for Liverpool. And growing up in the, in the, the, the mean streets of Liverpool, to be honest with you, right in the centre, it was fantastic upbringing, a hard upbringing, but a fantastic upbringing as well. And to be able to get me... My chance to play for Liverpool was an absolute dream come true. I never ever thought it would happen, Thomas, Jacob, I never thought it would happen, but I worked hard to try and make it happen. I had a fantastic support mechanism in my family and my friends and my relations, some of them work here. So it's it's something that I've always wanted to do and to be able to achieve that, I have to say to you, was, um, you know, it, was, it was a dream come true. I know people quite often say that, but to be able to play in this stadium in front of this crowd Literally, what what I always wanted to do, always. Uh, you were a youth team player when Bill Shankly was manager. Did you ever speak to him when you were a youth team player? And what was Bill Shankly like when you met him? Again, great question, man. I'm going to let you into a little secret if you don't mind, chaps. Um, I joined in 1974. I went to watch Liverpool in the FA Cup final. 1974, Bill Shankly was in charge then. He beat Newcastle 3-0. And I knew that I was joining Liverpool that summer after the game because I joined as an apprentice. So I goes down to Wembley, my first time at Wembley, to watch Liverpool in the cup final. He won 3-0, fantastic. I'm thinking, wow, I'm coming to join Liverpool, the team of my dreams. Shankly, the Messiah, I'm coming to join Liverpool. What a dream. I signed for Liverpool in the May, May end of May, 74, and Bill Shankly resigned. Bill Shankly resigned, and I honestly, for 10, 15 years, thought he'd resigned because Sammy Lee had joined Liverpool Football Club. <laughs> and I've lived under that cloud all my life. Um, hopefully it wasn't, um, but it's just a main coincidence that, again, as I say, I joined Liverpool Football Club with the fantastic support they've got. Just won the FA Cup. Bill Shankly in charge, and he resigns. So it was a, um, it was a bit of a, quite a... Um, Quite an upheaval for me to actually come into the football club at the time because at that point they think, well, OK, who's the new manager going to be? We've had the main man in charge, the Messiah, and suddenly he's gone. Who would fill that void? But thankfully what he did is he had this fantastic backroom staff called the Boot Room and he, he recruited them, he brought them in. And although it was a cha total change from Bill Shankly to Bob Paisley, the transition was seamless simply because Shankly had done his due diligence and got the best people in place for if and when he was to leave the club. But I'll go back to what I said before. For near on 10, 15 years, I thought I was to blame for Bill Shankly leaving this football club. So imagine my thoughts, Jacob, every time coming into the stadium, Bill Shankly resigned because of Sammy Lee. Wow. Hard, eh? What can I say? Changes for the better. Sure. <laughs> well don't you <laughs> correct yeah and as it proved to be because as I said before what happened is it, it did become quite a seamless transition and 
if anything, Paisley was even more successful, one of the most successful managers that this football club have ever had. So well done, mate. Yeah, change was for the better. Yeah. You made your Liverpool debut in 1978. Another great Liverpool manager, Bob Paisley, gave you your debut. What was he like as a manager and what are your memories of making your debut for Liverpool? Well, he was totally different to Shankly. Totally different. He wasn't as eloquent as Shankly because I'm sure if you listen to all the... The, the tapes, the podcasts, as they are now, of Bill Shankly. He was a fantastic orator, fantastic speaker. Um, Bob wasn't the same. Bob was totally different. But that's what, as I said before, Shankly did that. He brought different people who had different skill sets to him and complemented each other. And I have to say to you, when he gave me, me, me my debut, it was, it was incredible. Because at the time, there was only one sub. Now you have five, sometimes seven. You know, there was only one sub then. And I come here to Anfield... Not thinking I was going to get on, because what happened at Liverpool Football Club in them days is you didn't want to get hurt, you didn't want to get injured, because if you got injured, you lost your place and you very, very rarely got it back. So I report here for the game against Leicester, not for one minute thinking I was going to get on, because, as I say, Liverpool players don't get injured, don't want to lose the place. But thankfully for me, and sadly for a friend of mine, David Johnson, who has since died, he got injured fairly early on in the game. So that gave me my opportunity to come on and play and start for Liverpool. My family were on the stand. I'll be perfectly honest with you, I was very, very nervous. I normally say more of an expletive, but this is this is a family show, so I'll keep it as such. And it's quite strange because if anybody knows, you mentioned my my, um, my titles before, yeah, me, you know, my honours, but one thing that does never go with Sammy Lee is scoring goals. Yeah, on my debut, in front of the cop, I scored which, again, was totally a rarity, a rarity. But I had this strange thing, this rarity, because I scored on my debut for Liverpool, I scored on my first Liverpool Everton game, the Derby game, and I scored on my debut for England. Now, if you think about it, I don't know how many goals I scored, it wasn't maybe 19 or whatever, in, a, in a how many year period. As I say, goals and Sammy Lee don't go together. But to actually come on my debut and score in front of the cop, couldn't get, and I have to say to you, Thomas and Jacob, it was quite possibly the worst goal ever. It, it must have bounced 17 times before it went through the it went through the keeper's legs. I think I think if I didn't know any better, people, and people didn't know me any better, they may have thought that I bribed the keeper to let the ball go through his legs, but nothing could be further from the truth. It was that bad a shot that he was actually about to pick it up and distribute the ball without having done so, and it just trickled through his legs. You know, such a such a poor goal, but the one that I'll always remember, always. That was a great Liverpool team that you played in with such as Sir Kenny Dalglish, Ian Rush, Graham Souness, Phil Thompson and more. What was it like as a young man playing in this team? Heaven. Unbelievable. Again, I, keep, I may use this cliche and please forgive me if I do, but it was a dream come true. And again, I know that gets quite often used, overused, but in my scenario, in my position here, it was my dream come true. And to be able to play with them guys, I was very fortunate because I was um, I was quite an average player. I was a hard worker, but I can see I was quite small as well, you know, still am. You know, and so that worked against me. And I had to have other attributes to, to get on. 
to force my way into the side. But again, I was very fortunate because I had all these fantastic players alongside me, helping me, guiding me through, which was a very, very difficult journey. Because as I say, it's one thing getting into Liverpool's team, but Thomas and Jacob, it's another thing staying in there. And all these guys ever did, all these top guys, all these top players, all they ever did was help me. Help me to get through. There'd be times when I was struggling. And the joy of our team, because it was a team game, we all stuck by each other. If any one person, one player was struggling, then we'd get round them and help them and double up on them. Does that make sense, yeah? Yeah. And that's what we did. And I think that's what, that for me was one of the essences of why Liverpool were and are so successful. Because it's all about the team. Okay. In 1981, you reached the Europe Cup final in Paris. You played Real, Real Madrid. Real Madrid. Yeah. What are your memories of that game? Well, it's quite strange, Jacob. The game was a very poor game. We won the game. Alan Kennedy scored a goal. Again, Alan Kennedy, you wouldn't term Alan Kennedy as being a, um, a goal scorer, but yeah, he scored in the 81 European Cup final and three years later in the 84 Cup final. But it wasn't so much that game that I can remember. It was the game before in the semi-final. We played against a fantastic German side, Bayern Munich. And they came here, they'd done a job on us here, it was nil-nil. And we goes to play the second leg in the Olympic Stadium in Munich. And they, they made a classic faux pas, classic mistake, because they thought, having held us to a goalless draw here, that they were through to the final. So what they did... On their stadium, they put the directions of how to get from Munich to Paris on every seat for their supporters, thinking that the job was done and they were there. And if ever we needed an extra incentive to go win that game, that was it. Because we heard all about it. Our fans were in the stands. My family were in the stands. They'd heard beforehand what's going on. Why have they done this? Quite an arrogant statement on their behalf. And we love nothing better and rubbing people's noses in it. And they actually thought that they were already through. And we went out winners in that game in the semi-final, which got us through to the final against Real Madrid, the great Real Madrid. But it was more the semi-final that, that really stands out to me. And it was quite strange because in the second leg in the Olympic Stadium, again, Bob Paisley, who wasn't the most eloquent, he's a bit like myself, we, we don't talk very well, we have this accent, but he was very, very astute. And it's amazing because we'd been out onto the pitch beforehand. We'd done our warm-up, come back in. Next thing we go to go out, and literally 12 minutes before the kickoff, we're all lined up to go out, and Bob Paisley did something which he'd never, ever done previous. Never, ever done previous. As we're going out, he turned around and said, right, chaps, we're just going to make one change. Now, don't forget, we've already had our team meeting, and... In our team meetings, we knew everything about the opposition, the strengths, the weaknesses. You know, you get a dossier on them, you have a report on them. And we'd already played them here in the first, first leg. So we knew who, who their danger men were, who their, their playmakers were. And there was a young, well, not a young, there was a player called Paul Breitner, fantastic, fantastic midfielder, their playmaker, played for the German national side. So anyway, seven or eight minutes before we're going out, again, as I say, we've already played them here in the first leg, 0-0, zero, zero. Just about to enter the stadium over in Germany, and Bob Paisley just said, us, "Chaps, just before you go out, we're going to make one change." Now we were startled; all of us were startled because it's never been done before. And he just said, "I said we're going to man mark Paul Brightner." So we, we always 
as I say, we had the respect for the opposition. We knew their strengths, their weaknesses. But we always thought that if we played to our strengths, then we more often than not would, would beat teams and overcome teams. But he realised that well, how difficult it was to play against here. So last minute, he just turned and said, we're going to man-to-man mark Paul Breitner and Sammy Lee's going to be the man to man-to-man mark him. And I have to say to you, we're in line and we're, we're all looking in disbelief at each other because, again, as I said to you, I'm not the tallest, I'm not the biggest, I'm not the most, I'm not certainly not the fastest, but basically just his man management. And he just, from that moment, he said, I want you to stay everywhere Brightner goes, you stick with him, Sammy, you stick with him. And I did. I did my job. And I have to say to you, it, it, quite a, it played quite a major part in nullifying the threat and us getting through to the final. Um, it was amazing, amazing piece of man management by by Bob Pace. And I'm very astute. Think about it, chaps. If, I'd, if we'd have talked about this two days beforehand, I think we'd have all been nervous. The team had certainly been nervous. And we'd have thought, what, what are we doing? Why are we more concerned about them than us? But the fantastic bit of man management, that final few minutes before we're going out, I never had time to think about it. I never had time to, to have a sleepless night. I never had time to go to the toilet again, although I wanted to. It was just one I knew what I had to do, and I just stuck to him like a limper for 94, 95 minutes. It had a big part in us getting through and qualifying for the final. And that shows you, just shows you an illustration of how astute Bob Paisley was. Does that make sense, chaps? Yes. At the end of the 1981 season, you were voted Fans Players of the Year and were presented with your trophy by Bill Shankly. What was that like and what a great season that was for you? It's terrific, terrific. As I say to you, it's one of them situations where, don't forget, I go back to what I was saying before, I'm living under this dark cloud that thinking that Bill Shankly resigned because Sammy Lee joined the football club and then lo and behold, he then presents me with the player of the season and I have a photo of it at home and it's something, alongside Kenny Dalglish, it's something that will live with me forever because I grew up supporting Liverpool Football Club. I grew up supporting... Bill Shankly's team. So to actually get player of the season voted by the supporters off, it should have been said, Bill Shankly, it was just, it was a fantastic moment in my life. And it's quite strange because as you go through things, I tend to forget an awful lot of things because we here at Liverpool Football Club, you, you were told not to, not to dwell on that success. Once you've had that success, move on, move on. So I didn't really fully appreciate it as a player. It's only later in life when you haven't got it and people start you know, recounting what happened in certain games that you fully realise and appreciate just what we did. But that season, my first real full season, culminating us winning the European Cup and getting the Player of the Season award off Sir Bill Shankly was momentous for me, momentous. Football in... England in the 80s had a big hooligan culture. What was it like to play during this culture? Well, I don't like hooliganism in any, any sport, to be honest, yeah, Thomas. You don't, and there's no, there's no place for it in, in our society. It was prevalent at the time because of a lot of social unrest. But for me, I, I just want to concentrate on the football. And for me, I can, I only, I've only ever been brought up on control what you can control. I can't control what was going on in the terraces. You know, we may add to it by the fact of the fear and the excitement, but... I can only control what I can control. And to be honest, all I was concerned was trying to maintain my place in the Liverpool side, which is difficult enough. 
obviously we were aware of the situation. We were aware of the hooliganism on the outside. My family were here in every game. My friends were here. So I took, sometimes they got embroiled in it simply because of the mere fact that it was, it was happening all around the grounds. But for me, I can only control what I can control. And we just tried to make the, the, the most, the cleanest football possible. So hopefully it take the elements of um, aggression away from, from the, the opposing fans or from our fans. Because, as I say, there's just, there's just no room for that in sport at all. In, in society. True. During the early 80s, you won nine major trophies in five years. What, what was it that made that Liverpool team so dominant in the 80s? As I said before, I alluded, I alluded to it before, Thomas, is the fact that for me it was our togetherness, our camaraderie, our trust in each other. You know, it was a very tough environment to be in. And every day, every day, Jacob, on the training ground, we were challenged. We were challenged by each and every one of each other. You know, some of the things I don't think we'd be allowed to go on today, in today's society, but I kid you not, it was an odd environment but a fantastic environment. And once you prove to them guys that you could last, you could survive, then you were in. And nothing, nothing was going to take anything away from us because, again, by being tested every day, they were testing my character because to be a Liverpool player in front of all these fans, go all over Europe, all over the world, it is, you have to have a, a toughness, a mental toughness, not only a physical toughness, but a mental toughness. And I repeat, we were getting challenged every day. But once you, once you pass that challenge, then they trusted you, they embraced you. And as I said to you, once we were out on the field, there's no one, no one was going to take what we had away from us. No one. It happened on certain occasions, obviously, but our mentality was we stick together, we support each other. If anyone is, is, is struggling, we get round and we support and we double up. No one suffers in this team. Um... In 1982, you made your England debut against Greece. What was it like to play for your country and how do you look back on your time in England? Well, it's like everything else, it's the pinnacle of your career, Thomas and Jacob. Obviously, you want to play for your football club, to play for your, your, your national team. You know, again, it's, it's, one of them, it's one of them things that you can only dream about. Again, I mentioned before, the dream come true cliche, but it, it will reappear every, in every other question on every other page. But again, as I mentioned before, um, I think England was struggling at the time and they brought a nucleus of Liverpool players in, of which I was one of them. And again, as I said, it was a terrible condition in Salonica, Believe it or not, I mean, everyone thinks about the sun in Greece and whatever, it was torrential rain, torrential rain. And again, I managed to score a goal, largely due to the conditions, because a very, very heavy surface, very wet surface. Once the ball hit the surface, hit the turf, it just went straight past the keeper. He never had a chance to stop it. But again, pinnacle of my me, me career, because to play for Liverpool and then your country is, wow. But then to score for Liverpool on your debut and on your debut for England is double wow. In... 1984, what Bobby Robson used to do, Bobby Robson used to come round do the talks for all the coaches, you know, up and coming young coaches. So, Sir Bobby Robson, he'd come and say, and I, I wanted to, I wanted to delve into every aspect of coaching. So every course that was available, I went on. 
I went on. And quite often, so Bobby was on them courses, you know, giving the tuition and what have you, a tutorial. So everyone, you go, hey, Sammy Lee, Sammy Lee, hey, this is Bobby. He said, I'll give, give you your first cap, son. And yes, thank you, Sir Bobby, thank you. So next course, Sammy, Sammy Lee, yeah, I gave him his first cap. Jacob, Jacob I gave Sammy his first cap. So about the sixth or seventh course, I've heard this, you know, and I said to him, so he said, Thomas, Sammy Lee, Sammy Lee, I gave him his first cap. So I had to say, he said, Sir Bobby, can you stop there, please? He said, yeah, I said, you did, you did, thankfully you did give me my first cap. But you also gave me my last cap as well, Sir Bobby, because <laughs> Sir Bobby Robson also dropped me after 14 games. So I had to throw it in because after every, these courses, you know, and I told you I was diving into every course. I wanted to learn. I wanted to be a sponge. And he, he was terrific. And he took it in good faith, you know what I mean? But he just said, Sir Bobby, yes, you did give me my first cap, but you also gave me my last cap, please. So just halt it there, stop it there. But a wonder, wonderful guy, wonderful guy. He, you'd walk through the wall for him. You'd walk through brick walls for him. Terrific guy. You played with some great players, as we have mentioned. You must have had some funny times at Liverpool. Who were the jokers in the dressing room, and can you remember any funny pranks? Yeah, some of them I can mention on here, and some of them I can't, to be honest with you. Um, but I have to say to you, we went to, in '82. We went to the Sudan because again, Liverpool, being a global club, they wanted to expand into, and they wanted to get, you know. You know, you know, the public over there to support them. So we used to go to, used to go to Israel. We used to go to Hong Kong. But we went to the Sudan once, and again, can I say Liverpool were fantastic on the pitch, but we were also fantastic off the pitch. Because one of the reasons why we had fantastic camaraderie is we all used to like to go out for a drink together. And back in the day, it was it was the done thing. It's not now. But seriously, as soon as the game is finished, you go out into town, where you go in the players' lounge, you have a few drinks, you go into town, you have a few drinks. And that was our culture. It's changed completely now. But in 1982, it was the culture. All teams are doing it. It's just that we were doing it the best, Thomas and Jacob. You know, we were doing it the best. So anyway, we have this trip to the Sudan. So it's, it, there's a bit of a break in the season for whatever. And um, we played the game. I know it here, we'd won the game. So we, we had to stay on the coach to go to the airport. So straight after the game, we've had a few drinks, as we do. We get in the lounge at the airport, we've had a few drinks, as we do. We get on the plane, we have a few drinks, as you do, Jacob, you know. So we're no different to any other team, we're just better at it. But then what happens is then, so we've got this flight to Sudan. I've never been there before in my life, never been there since. Midway through the flight, after having drinks on the coach, in the airport lounge and on the plane, they suddenly decide that they want to put me in the overhead locker, in the plane. Mm -hmm. No. Yeah, there's actual there's actual footage of it, me getting put in the overhead locker of the plane, and I have to say to you, two, two things come. I'm, I mean, I, I look at me, and they used to have a song about me. I'm fat, I'm round, I bounce on the ground. That was that was a song. Do you remember that one, Thomas? Vaguely. Vaguely, I bet you sang it. I bet you sang it. <laughs> so so if you think about it, fatty's round, he bounced on the ground. It took about five of them to lift me up, Jacob. Right? Okay. And how I fitted in that overhead compartment. You're going Ryanair, Jesus, yeah, now you can't fit anything in there. And they've got me in there, so they closed the, 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 the shutter on me. And, you know, we, again, we've, we've all had a few drinks, Jacob, as, as I keep on mentioning. And I'm in, I'm, I'm, I've got this nervous laugh to go, <laughs> yeah, all right, okay, they're going to let me out now. <laughs> all right, boys, <laughs> you know, I'm, you know, thank you. I was in that hole the full trip, the full trip from Manchester to Sudan in the overhead locker 
over that luggage compartment. And they didn't let me out till we touched down in Sudan. I can't remember the return journey, but I was, and, but it's, it's quite strange because you know some people may and it, it wouldn't be allowed now. See, the, these, the easyJet people wouldn't allow you to do it anyway. You know the Ryanair, but not only that, it just wouldn't happen now. But rather than feel affronted by that, that was part of the things that we used to get up to with each other, which made us stronger, Jacob. And once again, if you couldn't handle that, you couldn't handle that out on the pitch. That's that's the way our mentality was. And it's different now. Thankfully, it's all changed now. Thankfully, you don't put me up in the overhead locker anymore. You know, I have my own seat. But again, I, I didn't feel as if that was it in, in any way having a go at me, in any way, you know, disrespecting me. It was just part of our banter. But I would have to say to you, for the length of the flight, I was so, so nervous. Even though I was a bit inebriated, I was so, so nervous. We could have been anywhere in the world. I've been in the, in the, over there locker, so I don't know where we were, where we landed. We could have landed back at Manchester for all I knew. But that was the type of things that we used to get up to in them days, you know. But that was part of our camaraderie. That, but that's what made us strong. That's what made us such, such a unit. Do, do you understand that yet? Does, yeah, I get it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Don't do it, though. Don't do it. Uh-huh. I would not. But my I could just imagine what you would like. When you got stuck in there and you thought you weren't going to be led to out. Well, and I, as I say to you, Jacob, I had, you know, initially you go, oh, it's okay now, Dad, you know, they're going to let me out now. But time was passing and they're going to let me out now. They're going to, I, never, they're going to, I couldn't even have a drink because I was in the luggage compartment. And, I'm thinking, and then suddenly I started getting all claustrophobic. I'm thinking, what's going on? But no, banging on the inside. Just, and the management, they didn't do anything to stop them and get, get me out. They just, well, that's what, that's what we do. And that's what happened. <laughs> That's what we do. Um, I could legitimately just imagine (laughs) what you were saying in there. I bet you you were like screaming. Well, I was screaming. Initially, I had the nervous laughter, Jacob. And then after that, when I realised that they weren't letting me out, you know, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I didn't know what would happen. I've been there before in my life or since. I wouldn't be able to fit in now. Look at me. After so much success at Liverpool, you decided to leave the club in 1986 and join QPR. Why did you decide to leave Liverpool? Well, I think, to be honest, yeah, yeah, what Liverpool have a fantastic ability to do, Thomas and Jacob, is that, you know, when you, you, your time's up, you have like a sell-by date on you, you, know, you have your food, you have a sell-by date. Now, mine was coming up on me father, you know, enough, you know, I'd had enough, they'd had enough of me, you know what I mean? And I ceased to be, I ceased to be the player that they needed. And that happens, I get that. It was difficult to take at the time. Basically, they, they were getting better players in. You know, and that happens, you know, I, I fully get that. And w- one of the strengths of Liverpool is that there was no sentiment involved. Once your time was up, once your sell-by date came up on your, on your forehead, then they got rid of you, you know. And, you know, it was strange because I'd become a bit part player in the side. I wasn't regular in the side. And I could have stayed. I could have stayed. But I wanted to play football. I wanted to play regular football. Queen's Park Rangers came in for me. And so I, I signed for them in 86. I have to say to you, when I signed in the hotel down in London... I'll never forget this, and I'll never forget. I phoned up my mum and dad, and I broke down in tears. Although it was something that I wanted to do, or felt I had to do, not want to do, felt I had to do. And once I signed on the dotted line for Queen's Park Rangers, and I realised I was away from Liverpool, I say I phoned up my parents and say, it's done, and I just burst out. I was on my own in the hotel, I just burst out into tears. Because don't forget, the dream come true was now ended, on the playing side of it anyway. So... Although, it was, although it was, I knew it had to be done, it was still a very, very, um, 
It was very, I have to say, it's a traumatic time for me and the family. But as a professional footballer, that's what you've got to do. You've got to move on at times. And again, I repeat, Liverpool have this fantastic ability of knowing when your time's up, knowing when you cease to be of use to the team. And it's football. If you haven't already, then be sure to download our new app, Gold, the home of challenges. Post and take on challenges, call out your friends, and top leaderboards. Challenges can be about absolutely anything, so be as creative as you like. Be sure to follow our social media, too, for awesome giveaways. That's gold. We have been in contact with some of your former colleagues. Former Bolton player Kevin Davis told us to ask you about your love for Tintin. Tintin? Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I love Tintin. I used, to, I used to think I looked like Tintin, you know, I was smaller than my, he had the little Scotty dog, which I've always had, you know, and it's just, I just love the animation of it. I just think the colours, the vibrant colours in it, you know, it's a Belgian thing, Asia's adventure, and I just, believe it or not, even behind the cartoon, there are storylines to it. There's actually like spy stories in it and things like that, but I just, initially, I just love the colours, I love the vibrant colours of Tintin, his hair, his jumper, and his little, his little dog, yeah, yeah. Tell him thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. You then spent some time in Spain. How did you find moving to a different country and in a different language? Well, again, a great question, Jacob. Another great question. You, you, chaps, you've done some great research there, by the way. Um, it's quite strange because, as I said to you, when I signed on the dotted line of Queen's Park Rangers, and this is no detriment to Queen's Park Rangers, it, it, was, it was a bad time for me professionally. You know, I've come to terms with not being at Liverpool again, didn't really give me best. And when in a space, I actually went down there. There used to be a player here, a colleague here of mine called Michael Robinson, who left here to go to Queen's Park Rangers. He was instrumental and influential in getting me to Queen's Park Rangers. When I went to Queen's Park Rangers, he then signed for this team in Spain, in Osasuna, in Pamplona. He was instrumental in getting me over there. And I have to say to you, it was a fantastic time for both me, my wife, and I'm a young boy. And it really was to be able to go over there to play another culture, another language, you know, and we learned the language. And to be perfectly honest with you, Thomas and Jacob, I, I have this, this honour of being able to speak two languages badly. <laughs> English and Spanish, I teach, speak two languages badly, you know, but it was amazing because the people over there were fantastic people. It was, it was northern Spain. There wasn't a lot of English people there, so it's not like when you go to Costa del Sol and there's a lot of English expats. This was the Basque country in northern Spain, and the people were fantastic. The food was fantastic, as you can see, and the wine was even better, as you can see. So it was, it was, it was lovely. Honestly, after after the shock, the culture shock of of leaving Liverpool, it's what I needed for the family. And we went over there. And we had two and a half fantastic years out there. Fantastic. Unfortunately, I got a bad injury out there, but it really would depend. And that's when you tell the strength of people because in football, when things are doing well, everyone, I'm sure you know, Thomas and Jacob, you all want to be your friend, your friend and, and fan and supporter. I, I had a great start there. We did a fantastic time and then I got a bad injury. It showed me the strength of the people because even when I was injured and not on the team, they were more supportive then than ever. I've got nothing but admiration and respect for my friends over in Pamplona. It's a fantastic part of the world. The people are fantastic and they've got respect for people. And what they, they liked about us is the fact that sometimes a lot of English people, are quite when you go abroad, because a lot of people speak English, as you know, we tend to get a little bit lazy and don't try to embrace the culture. We did, we tried to embrace the culture. And although, as I said before, I couldn't speak it fluently, 
I, I could get by. But they, they really admired the fact that we, 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 we tried and we attempted to embrace the culture and, and their lifestyle over there. It was a fantastic time in my life. It really was. All right. In your 1993, your former teammate, Graham Sunas, asked you to become a coach at Liverpool. What are your memories of that time? And what was it like to be given that opportunity? Well, it was, it was amazing because I'd actually, it's a bittersweet to be honest, because a very, very, very close friend of mine, Phil Thompson, was actually the reserve team coach at the time. Um, and what I didn't realise is I was actually going to take his place. Because I don't know what happened between Graham and him, but Graham went on to the change. And I, but the week before, I'd actually come up to Phil Thompson because. I wanted to get into coaching, as I said. I knew I was on the end of my me, me, me playing career, so I wanted to embrace the coaching. I wanted to get involved. So I came to Phil, and Phil, Phil actually turned around and said to him, well, Graham's up at the, at the ground now. I was actually at the training ground, but Graham, Graham Sunes, is up at the, um, the stadium now. Go and speak to him. He was signing a player. So I shot up here very quickly, and I said, look, Graham, I said to him, you know, I believe there may be a vacancy. I want to get involved in coaching. If there's a vacancy, there may not be. If there is, would you consider me? He said, well, I'll speak to you in about a week, Sammy. Now, I thought that was the end of it. I thought after me getting, you know, I'll speak to you in about a week, Sammy. Fobbed off, you know, sort of thing. And then what happened is in that week, sadly, what happened is um, Graham actually said to Phil Thompson, and Phil, as he was a great friend of mine, that he'd no longer be required at the club. And whereas I thought I was coming up to be Phil's assistant... I end up came up and being taking Phil's job, so that didn't go down too well with the Phil Thompson family, as you can imagine. But I have to say to you, the strength and the support they've shown me since tells you everything about the Thompsons. It really does, because it hurt him, because he's like myself. He's a very, he's a local lad. It was his dream come true to be to be captain of Liverpool and then to be in Liverpool's reserves as a, as a coach. Hopefully one day taking getting the first team on it, and then to suddenly lose that, he could have been very very bitter towards me. He was nothing but supportive, both him, his wife and his boys and his family. I have to say to you, nothing but fully 100% supportive to me. And it shows you the strength of character of Phil Thompson and his family. Um, Liverpool was so successful in the 80s, but only won one FA Cup and one league club in the 90s. What had changed in that period that made it more difficult time for Liverpool? Well, it's, it's, it's again, another good question. I don't think there's just one thing. I don't think there's one thing. A lot of things in football are cyclical. You, you come round. I think um, I think we, we lost our way a little bit. There was a little bit of trouble as regarding the ownership. Um, they had a couple of managers, you know, a bit of a change over then. And I think there was a lot of disarray at the club, a lot of unrest at the club. And I think that, that manifested itself out on the pitch. I don't think I could put it down to just one thing, Thomas or Jacob. I think it was a it was a culmination of of, of factors which led to the uh, the the, the bad and spell that Liverpool had in, in them years. Manchester United dominated English. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> in the nineties, how do you look back on that period, and what was it like to see your local rival become so successful? <coughs> Well, I think, I think it's a rhetorical question. You know the answer, I think. Um, it, it hurt. It hurt. It really did. Um, but again, again, it's something that we, rather than stick our head in the sand, we had to look at what was better than us. And we had to try and achieve that. We had to try and attain that. We had to try and get to that. We knew we had to improve. But you're right, the, the rivalry was intense. It still is now. It still is. You know, and they had a fantastic manager in charge. Um, 
fantastic managing charge. Alex Ferguson, fantastic. And I know we're not supposed to say that, but I'd have to say to you, I, I make no bones of saying I've got nothing but respect for the guy, for what he did, because he knew, and he, he took an awful lot of what was good at Liverpool Football Club, and he, he implemented that to Manchester United. Believe you me, he did. So there, there, is, there is a begrudging respect between the two clubs, you know, but merely because we know how hard it is to, to get success and how hard it is to attain success and, and retain success. And as you so rightly said, Thomas, I wish you hadn't brought it up, to be honest with you. You know, they, it was a very, very good pay and successful pay for them and a difficult and balanced spell for us. But as I said to you, we knew what we had to do and it took a while getting there and we took, it took a while doing, but, you know, there was things going on in the background to try and make sure that we had to get back to winning ways and continuous winning ways. In 2001, you became involved in the England setup, working under Sven Goran Eriksson. What was that period like for you and working under Sven? Magnificent, because as I said to you before, you know, you, you want, as a player, you want to play for your, your football club, your local football club, and then you want to play for the country. I achieved that. Uh, I was coach at, me, at Liverpool, and then to be able to be part of the coaching setup at your national team was once again, it was, it was another. It was another medal, if you like. It really was. And I started with the under-21s, England 21s, with Peter Taylor, who got me involved. And as I say, to go down with the actual national team, to go to two World Cups, 2002 and 2006, it was just an incredible experience, an incredible learning experience. Sven Goran Eriksson, totally different to every manager I've ever known before. And he was very cool, very calm, very serene, but knew the game inside out. Worked in Italy beforehand. He had an ice... Ice cold mentality and a very, 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 very astute mind to what he wanted out of the game and what he wanted his teams. And for me, it was once again, it was another, another learning experience for me. And I think throughout life, as I'm sure you guys know, whatever you do, as I said before, I wanted to be a sponge. I wanted to take things in. I wanted to learn things because for me, you can learn from every, every aspect of life, every aspect. And if you close your eyes, if you close your door to anything, then I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Because for me, we learned an awful lot from our failure at Liverpool, which led us on to greater success. And you learn more about people sometimes in failure than in success. Because it's easy at times to be successful. And, but when, when it's, it's, it's hard times, then you, you find a true person and a real person. And again, as with England... All I want to do is learn and learn from the best and to be, get another, another outlook on football from a man who managed in Italy. He was Swede, but he managed in Italy. And to be able to work under him and learn from him was fantastic for me as a young coach, wanting to develop, wanting to improve, wanting to be better all the time. In 2004, you went to Portugal for Euro 2004 as part of the England coaching team. People recall that the England golden generation with players such as David Beckham, Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, Frank Lampard, John Terry Moore. Do you think that team reached their full potential? No. No. Because, again, I think they all thought... I mean, it's hard, Thomas and Jacob, because sometimes when you get labels like the golden generation, the expectation level rises, yeah? Would you agree with that? So everybody thinks that the golden generation, they should go on and win everything... And it's not easy, particularly at world level, at international level. Um, they got the two quarterfinals and in, in 2002 in the World Cup and 2006 in the World Cup. And again in Portugal in the Euros. 
And again, there was a lot of pressure from the media, as there is now, but more so down on England. And again, they labelled them the golden generation. And it was, it, it, it was, I think it was very, very hard for some of them young guys to live up to the expectation that was put onto them. And I've got to be honest, I think it was unprecedented. I think it was unfair. But, you know, unfortunately, sadly, the truth be known is that results will tell you. I think they'll agree, the lads will agree, that they didn't really fulfil their full potential, which is sad, really, because, as you say, I don't like to call them a golden generation because it's easy to put a label on people, but they were a fantastic squad of players. There's a fantastic mix of youth, inexperience, age and experience. It was, it was, it was very good. You should have done better. They'll, they'll tell you that. You should have done. All right. People talk a lot about the divine in England, especially between Liverpool and Man United players. For some people who was there, what are your thoughts about that and how did you try to ensure there was a good team spirit? Well, again, I have to say, me being me, Wherever I am, I try to make everybody mix, everybody enjoy themselves, and everybody work for the common goal. And I know people will turn around. And again, people, people try to create that as well from the outside. They try to create this part of the difficulties I was saying before. There's outside forces which are um, helping to make it more difficult than what it actually was. And a lot of people say there was, there was divisions in there. If there were, I certainly didn't see them. I certainly, and what I'd do, if, if there was, I'd try to make sure and encourage that there was a togetherness. Because as I said to you before, being brought up in the best team ever, I spoke to you before about how we got our togetherness, our bond, our trust. By going through certain things, difficulties as well, I'd have made sure that, and I said my part was to make sure that everybody was together. And I, got, I, I kid you not, I could not say at any one given point that there was, you know, obvious rivalries or divisions. But people try to put that, and they try to blame that for the lack of success. And that's what I'm trying to say. For me, it was outside forces which, which, you know, helped for that lack of success at the time. We play this game with all, all of the managers we have spoken to, such as Sam Allardyce, Aaron Knapp, Dame, Dave Jones and more. We will say the name of a player that you have worked with, and we want you to tell us a story or a memory about them. Are you ready? Um, okay, yeah. <coughs> Phil Bab. Phil Bab. Again, we bought him from a, a tournament, played for Ireland in the World Cup, if you remember. And the biggest thing I remember about Phil Bab is that he um, he nearly cut himself in half when he slid into the goalposts, if you remember. And, and so that was, I think that's why we signed him, you know, because I understand it. <laughs> but now he was a um, great kid, Bobby. Came here, you know, and again, it's, it's, it's mainly because he came at the time. So you mentioned Golden Generation. There was a term for the team at the time here called the Spice Boys, which again, they were, um, it, was, it was a difficult time for them. A lot of youngsters in there. And Bobby came, he was part of that. And um, it, wasn't, it wasn't the most successful period of Liverpool's, career, uh, Liverpool's time on the pitch. But Bobby said, we got him from the tournament, and he certainly added, added to the. Um, to the excitement in and around the place, alongside the people like Neil Ruddock to this world, you know what I mean? So it was, a, it was an interesting place to be at the time. And uh, But Phil Babb, fantastic guy, fantastic player. He's often here now, and um, he, he goes around the lounges, does a bit of a talk on, on game day, and fantastic guy. Stephen Gerrard. I'll tell you what, people turn on to me, right, and just say, um, who's, the best, who's the best player you've ever coached, Right. And you'll always turn around and expect me to say, Stevie Gerrard. Right? 
Is that the camera there, yeah? Yeah. Stevie, you were the worst. You were the worst. <laughs> right. Now, see, Sarah's loud. Do you know why he was the worst? Why? He didn't need coaching. Natural, natural talent. He didn't need coaching. The kid was fantastic. And so for me as a coach, if I want to go, oh, yeah, didn't need coaching. You were the worst, Stevie, you were the worst. <laughs> he, he, he was unbelievable, fantastic. He had this natural talent. And imagine me trying to coach him. <laughs> exactly. Laughable. Fan. The only thing we had to do was give people, like, when you've got someone like that, you just have to give them parameters or guidelines to work with him. You know, do, do you understand what I'm saying with that? Yeah. And he certainly took that on board. He was, he was what a player. What a natural, gifted talent. Really wasn't. So again, I'm not being detrimental to say he was the worst. He didn't need coaching by Sammy Lee. He really didn't, honestly. And I would never, ever put my name to say I coached Stevie Gerrard because at the end of the day, I was there in, in title alone, that's all, because Stevie was just this fantastic, natural talent. Alongside his mate Carragher, he was quite, quite possibly the, uh, the pair in the, uh, in the squad at the time who, who everything generated from Everything came from Carragher and Gerard. Fantastic. All the good that came out of that team came from them too at the time. David Beckham. Magnificent. Magnificent guy. Really was again. These, you know, the a lot of his perception, people have this image of him, but as a guy to be able to work with him, fantastic. He was very receptive, listened to everything, want to improve every day. As all the best do, I mentioned Stevie Gerrard. The, the biggest problem we used to have with Stevie Gerrard and Beckham and Scholes is getting them off the pitch. They, they, seriously, because they just wanted to be on the training pitch morning, noon and night. And there's, there's this thing, you know, you have the sports scientists who tell you, you know, don't have to be out there too long, otherwise the legs, you know, everything taken out of the legs. And So I'm to go out there and try and say, you've got to come in. And they're telling me to... <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, so I'm having to, so be, you've got to come in, no, you, you know, so, but they're fantastic, fantastic guys. And as I say to you, all the best ones want to stay out there and they want to improve on a daily basis. You know, Stevie, obviously, I work with him every day here. So, as I said to you before, I didn't need to coach him. Beckham, who obviously David, we used to meet up again, a fantastic guy, and only, only wanted the best for the country for the team, as did Stevie, as did Lampard, as did John Terry, as did Scholes, as did, as did Neville. So when people talk to me about the divisions, I don't know, I don't get it, I don't see it, because all they wanted was f the best for the team, which was the national team at the time. Uh, Charlie Austin? Charlie, I came at the, at the, the end of his, to be honest with you, so I, I didn't, you know, I, Charlie never came across me very much. You know, I didn't have that much to do with Charlie, so it's difficult for me to talk about Charlie. All I know is that he wanted to do his best here for Liverpool. Wanted to do his best here for Liverpool, yeah. Can I do 2016? Yeah. You then left England to become a coach at Bolton and work under Sam Allardyce. Is this when you first met Sam, and why do you think he wanted you as his assistant? Yeah, nobody else. <laughs> yeah, nobody else. I'll tell you what happened. It's strange because we, I was part of the FA then, working for the FA, and we were putting on courses, as I said before, and we're down at Warwick University, and all the coaches now, you have to do CPD, you have to do continuous professional development where you get the hours into it. So basically, you don't stagnate, you keep on trying to improve. So we was on one of them courses, and um, so again, at, at the end of the, the, the evening, sometimes the best talks and the best chatting in the bar, 
And then Sam's there and he, he looks at me, he says, um, and I'm working for the FA, don't forget. No, I'm working for the FA. He said, you're bored. <laughs> you're bored, you're coming with me. Which we so glad for you. You're coming with me now. If you know Sam Allardyce, yeah, yeah, six foot eight, they're getting bigger by the day, and he's saying to me, five foot four, getting smaller by the minute, and he's saying to me, he says, you're coming with me. He says, you come to my room tomorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm working for the FA. I'm intimidated, but I go to his room the next day. Now, you know the hotel. You've been in the hotels where they have the robes you know, yeah. on the back of the door, yeah, it, yeah. right. Well, he's got his, and it doesn't go anywhere near him. It doesn't go anywhere near him. So he's opened the door to me, and my interview with him is, you come in, he said, I've lost me two assistants, which he did, Phil Brown and Neil MacDonald, who went to other clubs. He said, and I want you to join me. And to be honest yeah, I couldn't leave the room without saying yes to him. He, is, he has such, such a personality. He has such a presence, even with the ill-fitting bathrobe. You know, he, he has such a presence. And I have to say to you, and I came out of there... So I decided that I was going to join him and I had, to, I had to give me notice into the FA, which wasn't an easy thing to do. It wasn't an easy thing to do, but I knew it was the right thing to do. Okay. What is it like to begin an assistant coach? What would your role be at the club on a day-to-day basis? basis? Again, fantastic question. And it means different things to different people. Jacob, you know, like him. Um, but I knew what I had to do. I knew what I had to do. Me, me and Sam have this um, Big Sam, Little Sam. That's what they call it, Big Sam, Little I don't know why. Maybe you can tell me, Thomas, I don't know why, but it was Big Sam, Little Sam. And we have this, this fantastic... It's like, like man and wife, to be honest with you. We argue like mad. We argue like mad. But again, he knows that I've got certain skill sets. I know he's got certain skill sets. I tried to be a manager once. I failed miserably. And it was only then that I realised what it takes to be a, the head coach... And he's got it. He's got it all. But in doing so, he still needs his aides. He still needs his assistants. And my my function, as I always say, is to be him on the field. You know, he doesn't have to be there all the time. It's 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 hard for him to be there all the time. They've got press to deal with. They've got signings to deal with. They've got social media to deal with. It's such a just all encompassing job. So my I feel my function is to keep him away from certain things that he doesn't need to know that are going on day to day because he's got enough to worry about, and just make sure that when he came to them 22 players that he had available for them, that they were all in the best possible shape and frame of mind for him to go and work with. Because it's not easy, as I said before, you know, so I used to take most of the training sessions, and Sam would come in for most the, the most important elements later on in the week, the game elements. But the little bits leading up to it, I'd make sure that I'd take that. And again, as I said to you, I'd make sure that certain times I'd just say, just go home, Sam. Go to your family, go home. A couple of times we've been in London, you know, with Crystal Palace or would it be West Brom. Just go home to your family and just leave me with them. And I'd stay there with them and take your break away and then come back. He'd come back refreshed and he'd be ready. And when he's got to do his most important thing, which is on the grass, we call it the 11v11, which is the tactical, then he'd be in the best frame of mind to give them and impart his knowledge onto them and give his message for what he wants his team to do. And then he give us Saturday, Sunday, Monday or Tuesday. Does, does that sound okay? Yeah. Sure. We contacted Sam Allardyce and he asked us to ask you about the Cancer Charity Night when you and Sam fought on stage when you were at Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a setup, Adam? 
Well, well, he has, he has this, he has this regular charity, right? And um, and to be honest, it's a fantastic evening. He, him and his wife have raised millions. It's fantastic. But we always have this. He, he has this, this sketch, and it was from um, Peter Kay. Is this the way to Amarillo? And it was Ronnie Corbett, and I'm, I'm the little Ronnie Corbett. You may not remember it, but basically, in the scene from Amarillo, we're on a treadmill, and Ronnie Corbett, small Ronnie Corbett, falls off the treadmill. So I'm Ronnie Corbett. So we're 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 rehearsing this, right? And he's six foot eight, and he's loving himself, going, you know, just the way to Amarillo. And every time I've got to fall off the off the off the, off the treadmill and hurt myself every time. And it was just one of them sketches that um, it was. And there must have been about 250 people in the thing, and we've got to go on and do the sketch. And again, we've rehearsed it for nine, two, three weeks. I'm bruised all over the place. Every, I nearly broke my leg three or four times, and we've got to do it one final time. And again, once again, the lead up to it, Jacob, is that you have a few drinks. So, you know, the rehearsal that we've done for three weeks went out the window, and I'm totally uncoordinated <laughs> on this treadmill falling off the treadmill it was, it was actually the best take but I was just full of red wine that's why it came out to be the best take that we'd had and we'd been rehearsing it for three weeks but it was it was one of them once again where rather than feel be a little by it we knew what what it was doing it was earning a lot of money for the fantastic charity and we knew that it was going to go down well. It'll be well received, and it was. And it went viral. Sadly for me, it went viral. <laughs> he shouldn't be asking you questions like that, though. I'll get him when I see him. Yeah. <laughs> when a manager gets sacked from a club oh. and a new manager comes in, how does the process work in regards to the backroom staff? Is it up to the new manager if he wants to keep you or not? More often than not, yeah. More often than not, because what happens is they, they, they bring their own staff in, and which rightly so. I mean, I'm seen as being part of Sam's staff. You know, whether that's right or wrong, he may want to go a different avenue in, in the future if he gets another job. I'd never ever take it for granted. But more often than not, yeah, the, uh, the manager comes in, he has his, his people who he trusts, because we mentioned trust before, didn't we? Which is very important. And I think the process in football, everybody knows that when the incumbents are coming in, it could mean that you've got to go down the road, you know what I mean? You've got to leave. And that's part of life, that's part of football, that's part of the coaching setup, you know. And rather be rather than be um, be angry about it, it's something that you accept because hopefully if if the manager that you've been working with, he may go and get another position and hopefully, I say hopefully, he'll take you with him again. Does that make sense, yeah? Yeah. Uh, you then return to Liverpool to become assistant to the manager, Rafael Benitez. Why did you decide to return to Liverpool and what was Rafa like as a manager? Well, he asked me to. He asked me to come back. And the reason I left, because I was with Gerard Dooley and Phil Thompson, who Phil Thompson, who I mentioned before, he came back later on as assistant to Gerard Houllier. I was then at the club, obviously as a young coach, and they brought me, the reserve team coach, they brought me into their team for the first team, which is fantastic for me. Again, I go back to the way Phil Thompson treated me, and rather than be disrespectful, rather than be angry with me or bitter towards me, he promoted me. Um, and to be honest here, it was a fantastic time under Gerard Hulley and Phil Thompson. Liverpool, they've got the mojo back, you know, they've won trophies in Europe, the UEFA Cup, you know, they've won the, the, the League Cup. You know, and it was a fantastic time. And then, as always, Gerard got ill, and unfortunately, what manages the cycle is that he, 
the success had dwindled. So you know, they decided that the time was up for Gerard and Phil. And I was asked to stay at the time, but I felt that if I was part of that success, then I was also part of the failure as well. So with a heavy heart, I left. I left. Then a couple of years later, Rafa invited me back in, which is fantastic. I jumped at the at the, at the opportunity because I never ever wanted to leave, to be honest with you, Jacob. But I felt that was the time was right. Um, I jumped back in there and it was fantastic. Once again, working with a foreign manager, new ideas, new culture. And thankfully, as I said before, I had a grasp of Spanish. Don't forget what I said before, I can speak two languages badly. It was actually, it was actually him who told me that. It was actually Rafa Benitez who told me that, uh, that I speak two languages badly because obviously he knew I was trying to speak Spanish. And it he, he, he was him who labelled that, that I spoke two languages badly. So I've got him to thank for that. Um... All managers have different styles of management. How did you find adapting to different managers' coaching styles? Well, that was part of the joy for me, to be honest with you, Thomas, because as I said to you very early on in the conversation, when I embarked on my career of, of, of the coaching badges and that, I wanted to listen to everybody, I wanted to learn from everybody, I wanted to be a sponge. And what I then decided to do was try and get the best bits of each and every manager. Does, does that sound sensible? You know, and, and there was, I took a few weaknesses on as well, so sometimes a few traits, but I tried to get the best out of each and every one and tried to incorporate that into my everyday coaching. Didn't always work, but more often than not it did. But I think for me, I realised very early on that I, would, a, that I wanted to be an assistant manager, head coach wasn't for me. So in order for me to be an assistant manager, I had to make sure that to survive also, I had to adapt. And I wanted to adapt, I wanted to learn other coaches. I had a taste of that when I went as a player, as I said before, from England to Spain. So I then really wanted to emulate that again in my coaching career. And it was just fantastic for me to work under these different different cultures, different ideas, all the time. Every training session I've had written down, and they're all different, the different managers. Fantastic. Fantastic learning experience for me. In 2016, you rejoined England with Sam Allardyce. We spoke to Sam on our podcast a few months ago, and he talked about his dis- disappointed time from his time at England. How do you reflect on that time? Well, I've got to be honest here. He says it better than me, because I think it was his um, it was it was his ultimate job. His ultimate job to be manager of the national team, working with all these fantastic players. And I know how disappointing for him that it was so, so short. It ended um, badly, you know, for us both, you know. And I think it's very, very, you mentioned disappointing. For both him and his family, for me and my family, it was very disappointing. And um, it's something that I'm sure we will all regret for the rest of our lives, the fact that we didn't stay longer there. But he is quite possibly one of the most successful England managers. 100% record, one game, one win. That's not bad, though, is it? Hey? Exactly. Hey? <laughs> you and Sam Allardyce worked at a lot of clubs together. Why do you think you and Sam worked so well together? We trust each other. We understand each other. We argue with each other. We question each other. We challenge each other. And we stay together. So all through all the challenges, all the, the questions, once we leave, he has a thing and, and everywhere he goes, it's called a war room where basically what happens is you get all the coaches in to give their ideas, whether it be on team selection, whether it be on players or what have you, styles of play, patterns of play, shapes of play. And we argue, we discuss, we debate, we dispute. 
But once we leave the door, once we leave the room, we're all with the same view. And he's the main man, and it's always his view. But his view comes about from listening to others, listening to us, understanding us, taking on board what we say, implementing what we say, or ignoring what we say, whichever the case may be. But he has that warning to get... And his opinion when he leaves is the most informed opinion he could have because he's listened. And that's the strength of the guy. He's prepared to listen to his coaches and his staff. A lot of people don't, but he does. And again, he'll make his decision on all the opinions and the views that are being given to him, which is the most informed decision. But once again, the book stops with him and he knows that. And the ultimate decision is his. And we know that and we respect that. And again, I say we can, even to the point where as he's going out the door, we're arguing. But once we get out there in the public domain, we're all on the same same path. Besides from Sam Allardyce, which manager did you feel you were best under and why? It's a great question, mate. It's, it's difficult for me to answer that to me because, again, I say I've, I've had great times with all of them, all of them, you know, right the way through. I really have, honestly. And again, I repeat what I said before. I've tried to get take the best out of each and every one. Um, I suppose stats will tell you certain things about which are most successful. But for me, I've, I've, as you mentioned before, the word you used was adapt. I've tried to be adaptable. And in being adaptable, I'd be acceptable to everything that comes in. And so I couldn't really turn around and say which had been the best or which had been the worst. There'd been no worst. They've all been very, very good. And for me, as a young coach, the fact that I could learn from these meant that I was getting the best, the best education possible. And that's, that's what kept me going all these years. Okay. That's okay. okay. In 2017, you joined Everton as a coach. As a Liverpool legend, how do you reflect on the time at Everton and how did the fans react to you? <coughs> Mixed. <laughs> Mixed. Uh, good and bad. Um, red and blue. You know, and I knew what was going. I knew what was happening. I knew what was going to come my way. Um, but it's quite strange. See, I, I, if I put it this way to you. I have a number of passions, okay? A number of passions. Not loads, but a number. My family, first and foremost. Football. And the city. Now, again, as I said to you before, I was just very, as a family person, I was very, very lucky to be brought up as a Liverpoolian. And the unique situation in this city is that in the same dining table, the same family, you can have red and blue. That's a fact. I don't think that happens in many other cities. In fact, I know it doesn't. I was just down to be brought up red. So when we get the opportunity, what happened was I got sacked again at Liverpool. You know, again, I say it repeat again. So, but I want to continue my passion, and my passion being the football. And to get the opportunity to join Everton, and when, when Sam joined Everton, when Sam and I joined Everton, they were 16th in the table, in desperate situation, looking like they're going to be relegated. Sam got them from 16th to 8th, which meant survival. And that was quite possibly one of the proudest moments of my coaching career because, again, if I can go back to what I was saying before about my passions, family, football, I was able to continue my passion with football, but the city, this city needs the two teams in the Premier League. Look at Everton now to build this fantastic new stadium. We need them to be in the Premier League because, as I said to you before, this is a unique city with unique people. And again, 
I repeat, same family, different sides of the table, one could be red and one could be blue. And that's why I was so proud to be able to keep that, the, the status of Everton in the Premier League just for the City because the City needs the two. Do, do you understand where I'm coming from with that? Yeah. yeah. I, I really, honestly, for me, it's the City and that would be passion. And some people couldn't accept the fact that I joined Everton. They really couldn't. And I get, I get that as well. A lot of Republicans call me traitor. I got caught all kinds of abuse, you know. But I got, also got an awful lot of plaudits as well, red and blue, you know. And they realised the job, what we did in keeping the status quo, keeping the two teams in the Premiership, you know. And Sean Dyche hopefully will do it now for Everton again, you know, because they, they're in a precarious position, but he's had a few good results, and hopefully he'll keep them in, in the Premiership because, I repeat, this city needs the two teams in the Premiership. Can I ask a question, Sammy? Um, I hear a lot of people from Liverpool talking about the city of Liverpool and how much the city means to them. Why is Liverpool different? Because I feel if I went to Manchester and asked a main person that question, the answer probably was quite different. Or Birmingham, Villain, Birmingham or Sheffield. What makes a city of Liverpool so so special, so different? Person? Well, I mean, I'm biased, aren't I? I'm biased in my because... Well, I think what you're saying is right there. I think Liverpool, for some reason... Is different. I don't quite know why. Well, well, I think it's for the people to tell us that then, if you like, Adam, you know what I mean? Because all I know is I'm, I'm born and bred here. You know, I've been fortunate to move away. And I know how much the, the city means to an awful lot of people, you know, globally, you know. And um, it's hard for me to say, but I, I tried to mention before, and one of the reasons why I joined Everton to the Chaps is because my passion is for, is for football and, and for the city. You know, and I think, and again, I repeat... I may be wrong, but the way my interpretation of it is, is that, again, I say, in the same family, you can have Evertonians and Liverpoolians. I don't think that happens in many other cities. So that may help to answer the question. It certainly helps me formulate my opinion on, on my city and why, why I did it. When you see Liverpool Everton, you see the odd blue shirt in the home, home stand. But you won't get that in Glasgow or Manchester. No, no, or Milan. Of Buenos Aires, no. But that's why I say that's why that's why I think we're different, unique. But then people might think I'm arrogant. People might think, "What are you talking about? What are you different?" Well, I think we are. Do you want to get back into football in the future? Have a job offer, Jacob. <laughs> Oh. Let's, let's, have a let's have a chat if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course I do. Yeah, of course I do. But whether it'll happen, I don't know. Uh, I'm not getting any younger. I'm certainly not getting any taller. I'm getting heavier. I'm getting heavier by the day. So I'm not too sure whether it'll happen. Um, and it's becoming an increasingly a young man's game. Having said that, Roy Hodgson has just gone back in to Crystal Palace. Who I work with Roy as well. Here at Liverpool, another fantastic guy. You know, football through and through, football runs through his veins, and, and people people question why he's gone back in because it's what we do. So, if it's good enough for Roy, it'd be good enough for me, Jacob. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> Before we finish, we would like to play a game with you. Oh. <laughs> that we play with all our guests. The game is called Wrong Answers Only. We will ask you a range of questions and you have to give us the wrong answer. Are you ready? I thought they have done it all, all day. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite ground in the Premier League? Goodison. Best player you ever worked with? <laughs> <laughs> Sam Allardyce. <laughs> Highlight of your career? Today. <laughs> Favourite manager you worked with? 
the wife. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about Sammy Lee is I'm six foot three. <laughs> and I look like Brad Pitt. <laughs> Every week on the podcast, we like our guests to, to ask questions to each other. So we get a guest to ask a question. They have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's questions comes from our previous guest, who was former England rugby player Leon Lloyd. Um, he asked, "Which actor would play? Would you play in a movie about your life?" Brad Pitt, as I said before, obviously. <coughs> I think I, I, read, I read that, didn't I? That came through. No, um, I've got to be honest. Um, it, it, way before your time, way before your time, uh, an actor called James Cagney, little small fella, uh, <laughs> bit, bit, bit of a knock, eh? had an accent, used to run up walls, great dancer, eh? great singer, <laughs> great actor. Yeah, that's what I want, James Cagney. Okay. Um, could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the guest is. The question could be anything you want. Okay. Can you ask him or her, mm-hmm. where in the world do we rather be than at that moment? Okay. I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Sammy. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. That's an absolute pleasure. Hey, Thomas, Jacob, thank you very much indeed for your time. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.